This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. When the Institute of Medicine published its Dying in America report, specifically flagged this as what they called ethically troublesome to wait until the patient's medical condition worsens into an emergency so that consent to treat is implied. Deciding for another is difficult. One of the most challenging ethical issues faced in clinical practice today is deciding for unrepresented patients, patients who have no advanced directive or no family and friends who can make decisions on behalf of the patient when the patient can't speak for themselves. They can include some elderly and mentally disabled patients, homeless, socially isolated, or patients whose partners may not be legally recognized as surrogate decision makers. Three to 4% of those living in U.S. nursing homes, 5% of the 500,000 patients per year who die in intensive care units. Moral distress of clinicians can run high, especially given the diverse and complex national legal environment surrounding these patients. Our expert panel and legal guests experienced in the daily life of healthcare environment will offer insight into these challenges and offer both an overview and practical solutions being tested today across the country. Two issues that will be raised in our dialogue this morning are, should treating clinicians play the role of advisor rather than decider? And are ethics committees the best alternative to unilateral clinical decision-making? I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Our guests today are Bethany Kapp, board-certified physician in emergency medicine and palliative care, joining us from CHI Franciscan. Thaddeus Mason Pope, uh, director of the Health Law Institute and professor of law at the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. Lori Dangberg, vice president of the Alliance of Catholic Healthcare in Sacramento, California. David Vukadinovich, past co-chair of the California State Bar Health Law Committee and Vice President and Associate General Counsel at Dignity Health in California. And Jackie Glover, Professor of Pediatrics at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities in the Center uh, in the University of Colorado and joint leader within the uh, Colorado Collaborative for Unrepresented Patients. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. Bethany, I think we're going to go to you first. Uh, we want to understand a bit more the clinician experience when you receive patients who are unrepresented. And I know that even in your own practice, you're board certified in emergency medicine. And, and am I correct that you became board certified in palliative care medicine because of sometimes the challenges that this patient population would present for clinicians like yourself? Yes, um, as you said, I've been practicing in emergency medicine for about the past 10 years. But also, a couple years ago, recently transitioned into the field of palliative care, and partly because of this very issue, the issue of the unrepresented patient and patients that do not have advanced directives and needing guidance on how to treat these patients. But we experience the dilemma of how to treat the unrepresented patient, not infrequently in the emergency department, and frankly, it's quite distressing for us at times. It's been my experience that unrepresented patients can be at risk for both overtreatment and undertreatment. Well, let's just get right down to it. Let me tell you about a case um, that I've had in the emergency department 
and the details that I'll be discussing are drawn in part from a real case, but also with details protected for privacy purposes. But, so picture this, EMS arrives with an older gentleman, they say that he has some dementia, he's very feral appearing, very elderly, thin, and he's gasping for breath. And you look at him and you wonder if he might be in the last phase of his life just due to his lung disease. But one thing you do know is that he's heading for respiratory failure and that he's likely going to die if you don't intervene right away. As you think this, though, you're worrying about would this gentleman want to be placed on a ventilator at this phase of his life? And then you also worry if you do place him on a ventilator, will he ever be able to breathe again on his own? And is that what he would have wanted for himself? So you really quickly look to see if he has an advanced directive, and he doesn't. He doesn't have any emergency contacts. Your social worker is right on it and finds that he's divorced and estranged from his children, and EMS says he lives alone. You know if you don't act soon, he's going to die. So I intubate him. That means I put a tube down his windpipe and connected him to a machine to breathe for him. I looked at his x-ray, and I see that he does have advanced lung disease as well as spots of pneumonia throughout his lungs. I'm pretty worried, but I admit him to the ICU and I have to go on about my night and seeing the rest of my patients. He's kind of in the back of my mind though, and a few nights later I'm on shift and a code blue is called in the hospital. We as emergency physicians, depending on your facility, respond to those, so I rushed over to the ICU and find that it's the same gentleman that I had just treated a few nights before, and CPR is already underway. I'm, I'm thinking as I walk in the room, the same types of things. Is this, is this what he would have wanted? Um, or is this unnecessarily traumatic for him or burdensome? Nevertheless, we do 15 minutes of CPR and we save him, meaning his heart started beating again on its own. As I'm assessing him though, I realize that he has multiple rib fractures and a punctured lung from the procedures that we just did. And I'm wondering in the back of my mind, did I, have I really helped this gentleman or, or have I not? I don't know. I, but I go back to my shift and, and carry on. But yet I'm still thinking about this gentleman a few weeks later. And so I look him up to follow up and, and see what has happened. And I find that he's still in the ICU. The situation has stabilized somewhat in that they have now been able to put a breathing tube in his neck for a more permanent way to assist him to breathe and he now has a feeding tube in his stomach, but he's still in the ICU um, and hasn't been able to transfer to another facility. And I find that that was due to lack of him having a guardian um, or family to consent for that. I followed up on him then again later, um, a couple of months later, and found out that he was actually in the ICU for about six to eight weeks before he ultimately died in the ICU of a hospital-acquired infection. Um, and I thought about him for days to weeks to come. And Bethany, if I might ask you as well, you speak so eloquently about what the experience was like for you. What, what do you witness among your colleagues as well in, in patient stories like this? Um, what, how, how do you see them reacting and responding as well, your, your interdisciplinary team? Yeah, this can be quite challenging um, for the team, for the bedside nurses in particular that are, are caring for these patients and seeing that sometimes these patients can be in significant distress while they're in the ICU um, and while they're on machines or not maybe not being cooperative with their care and can lead to 
a multitude of discussions almost daily about is this, are we doing the right thing? Is this what someone um, would have wanted for themselves? Frequently, we end up, um, as you alluded to, consulting the ethics committee um, or taking some type of avenue such as that to just get further guidance on these situations because it can be so distressing. And I think you had a second story for us as well. I did, yeah. This one is a little bit different. This is a 40-year-old gentleman who we know very well in our emergency department um, that is homeless and also has a history of schizophrenia um, on and off his meds, frequently comes in intoxicated. Um, sometimes he comes in for a place to sleep, sometimes a sandwich. He's someone that we all sort of know and talk to, um, although recently went through um, a spell where he had been off his medications for a while. Um, he was found intoxicated um, on the ground and brought into us. He got a CAT scan of his head. And we actually found nothing acutely traumatic for him, but a, an incidental finding of a really large aneurysm in his brain. He was seen by neurosurgery who recommended an elective surgery to repair that. However, he was unable to consent for himself and he was unrepresented, so the surgery was deferred. Unfortunately, a few times later, I saw him again in the emergency department, same sort of scenario. He came in, he smelled of alcohol, he was found down, we thought he was intoxicated, but this time when we did the CAT scan, we found that his aneurysm had actually ruptured. He went, to the, he went for surgery this time emergently, but unfortunately, he died in the operating room on the table, and we wonder, you know, might might he have wanted that surgery electively? I'm not sure. It's very challenging. Um, these cases are very challenging when you don't know your patient's beliefs or values or preferences, um, and certainly gives us a lot to think about um, as clinicians. Well, Bethany, thanks so much for giving voice to the clinician experience with, with this patient population. Thaddeus Pope, Thank you... Thank you very much. Thaddeus Pope, you have... Um, published extensively on this issue. You have looked at it from a national perspective. You've seen uh, trends emerge nationally. We want to ask you, what, what, what are you seeing nationally? What are the types of trends that, uh, that, that have been involved? What, what are some of the national trends uh, that, you're, that you're seeing as you take a look at this from a national perspective from where you sit? Yeah. So the thing that I think is still surprising is how large the problem is and it's still growing, right? As you noted, right, for people who are unrepresented, meaning they lack capacity and they also lack any available substitute decision maker, right? That's 16% of ICU admits, 5% of ICU deaths, three to four percent of the u.s nursing home population um so it's it's a it's a big problem and it's a little unfortunate that it's not really getting that much attention relative to its size and it's not just a big problem but it's also a growing problem right we have the, the main set of patients in this population are very the, the extreme elderly and we know that that is a population that is rapidly growing and it's not just that that population oh go ahead 
So it's not just that the population is growing, but a lot of these people are isolated. They live alone. Perhaps they've outlived um, their family and the people who would naturally have been their surrogates. More and more people are not having children who would again have been their natural surrogates. And then there's people who have family members they exist, but they've lost contact with them because of, you know, perhaps past drug use or criminal activity or an LGBT uh, discrimination issue. So um, more and more people are becoming unrepresented. Uh, Bethany, I think, gave us some nice cases that illustrate uh, what happens when a patient can't advocate for herself and also has nobody to advocate for her. Um, but let me just synthesize the literature on that, because I think the, the, it's helpful perhaps to identify what exactly the problem is, right? When there's nobody to authorize treatment, typically uh, healthcare providers have taken three common approaches. There's three types of responses to that. The, the first is, is under treatment because people are trained that you, that you really should have the patient's consent uh, before you do something to the patient, and they're reluctant to act without consent, so they wait. They're waiting um, until there's an emergency, and then they can act on the basis of implied consent. Um, but that is obviously not a really good approach because it subjects the patient to a longer period of suffering, increases the healthcare risks to the patient. And since this is in fact, unfortunately, such a prevalent approach, a couple years ago, when the Institute of Medicine published its Dying in America report, um, specifically flagged this as what they called ethically troublesome to wait until the patient's medical condition worsens into an emergency so that consent to treat is implied. And at the same time, other providers uh, don't take an under-treatment approach, but take an over-treatment approach. So they're afraid of, for example, in the nursing home context, afraid of liability, afraid of regulatory sanctions, and therefore err on the side of treating aggressively. Um, but that too isn't ideal because it subjects the patient to burdensome and unwanted interventions and, and doesn't really take into account their preferences or best interests. And then the third key problem uh, that's been identified is that um, the patient isn't discharged to a more appropriate setting. So for example, they stay in the hospital because there's nobody to authorize uh, the discharge, but of course, staying in the hospital isn't ideal. It subjects them to a higher level of risk. And at the same time, they're not getting the benefits um, of the other facility. For example, it might have been a rehabilitation facility. So those, those are the three common responses, all of which um, are not really getting the patient what, what, she, what she needs. Um, Avadius, you've, you've published as well that uh, guardianship is sometimes offered as a uh, a solution, and 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 you've questioned at times whether that's really as good a solution as we hoped it might be. Right. So, well, in fact, I would say it's stronger. Right. In fact, guardianship is always the official 
authorized solution, right? If the patient hasn't appointed an agent in an advanced directive, if, if they don't have an available default surrogate, then in every state, you, you could go to court and get a guardian, at least theoretically. And it's not, this is not really a unique idiosyncratic argument on my part. Generally, I think there's a wide consensus that nobody thinks guardianship is a good approach here, um, or at least that they think guardianship should always be a last resort and you should always find a less restrictive alternative. Um, and, and the reasons are because getting guardianship is, is a slow process, it's expensive, everybody has to be represented by attorneys. Um, it's cumbersome. And in fact, often there is no um, available guardian, right? Normally, the, the person that courts appoint to be somebody's guardian is a family member. But of course, these people don't have family members. So we generally need a public guardian. And in many, many jurisdictions, they are not available. So um, many, there's been an innovation in the last few years trying to find um, other approaches that are less cumbersome than guardianship. Sometimes those approaches are authorized in state statutes, uh, you know, which basically expand the list of authorized surrogates. And sometimes institutions just proceed and adopt a policy and practice on their own uh, without any state statutory authorization. What, what, what the literature shows is that the dominant approach by far across the United States is that when, when a patient doesn't, can't make her own healthcare decisions and there's nobody to make them on her behalf, then generally um, the attending physician just makes the treatment decision herself. That, again, there's a pretty broad consensus that that's not a good approach because if the, if the attending doesn't have to explain it to anybody else, um, then it's arguably less considered of a treatment decision. Any biases of the attending physician remain unchecked. It's, it's the decision basically just isn't as carefully vetted. And probably as Bethany has mentioned as well, even physicians are probably, or some physicians themselves are uncomfortable with that approach themselves. Right. So the, I, here's the challenge is, is to balance fairness and procedural due process on the one hand against practicality on the other hand, right? And so you have these two extremes, guardianship, which is sort of the paradigm of procedural due process. You have a, a probate court judge, right? You have, and you have all the trappings of the judicial process, but it's so slow and, slow cumber, and so, so cumbersome that, that you basically are still gonna need to make treatment decisions in the interim, even before you get a guardian, if you do get one. Right. On the other end of the continuum, you, you have the attending proceeding all on her own. And so most, most of the uh, innovation lately has focused on developing a mechanism, a decision-making mechanism that lies somewhere between those two extremes, balancing practicality um, and fairness. In other words, a mechanism that has some amount of vetting, like a multidisciplinary committee. Sometimes that's been authorized in statutes, like in Montana and Colorado. Um, and other times, it's just been a matter of institutional policy. And one, one, and when you're doing that, when you're developing approach that balances those two things, um, 
I think commendable is, for example, the Veterans Health Administration approach, which uh, correlates the amount of vetting and the amount of process to the type of decision. So if it's, if it's a decision about life-sustaining treatment, then naturally it would have a, a more thorough and robust vetting process. And if it was a less consequential treatment decision, then perhaps it doesn't need as much vetting. So that's, that's, that's what's been going on. But so we have a number of states and we have a number of institutional policies um, and people are paying more and more attention to this because it, it does seem to be perhaps the biggest um, issue in clinical ethics consultation. And some of those alternate approaches that you've identified uh, before, Thaddeus, uh, you know, the tiered approach that you just talked about with respect to the VA, uh, you've noted as well that that ethics committees themselves are being leaned on more and more to provide a bit more due process and a bit more interdisciplinary decision-making around these uh, particular patient stories. But you've also identified how, how different states are even identifying independent external consent groups, committees, you might call them, New York, Iowa, Texas, Florida as well. Right. Now, those, it's worth noting that the, the, um, the New York, Iowa, generally those are for um, specific patient populations, um, you know, for people with mental health issues. Um, but it's worth thinking about this, right, as a policy matter, uh, um, about whether or not to adopt that kind of model for a purely medical patient population. Right. The advantage here is that these these committees are independent of the facility that is treating the patient. Right. Right. The other model, when you use an ethics committee, ethics committees are comprised of of basically almost 100 percent of people who have a financial dependency upon that institution. So they may not be as objective as we would like them so that. But again, we have to trade off. If we have an independent ethics committee that's more cumbersome, how quickly can we convene it? How responsive are they going to be? So I think it would be a little bit more fair, would have more elements of procedural due process to have an independent committee, independent of the facility. But is it is it really going to be workable? Right, right. Well, very helpful to have that national overview and see the trends that uh, are uh, are evolving. Let's let's take a little bit closer look at the experience of uh, two states, and perhaps first we might go to uh, California with both Lori and David. David offering us a picture of how the state of California tried to look at this particular issue and form a response to it. Lori or David? Great. Thank you, uh, Kevin. And I, I very much appreciate um, Thaddeus's comments, and in particular, the, the responses of facilities uh, with regard to uh, overtreatment or undertreatment and difficulty in discharge. And in fact, in California, what we've experienced is a lack of legislative guidance. And in fact, California is one of the very few states in the country that does not have a legislative uh, hierarchy of decision makers. And so several years ago, uh, it was an observation of, of a number of us uh, that our ethics committees and clinicians were very much struggling with unrepresented patients. And so the policy that, that we've shared uh, and that we'll be discussing this morning really was the outgrowth of what started as a legislative attempt uh, to 
put in place a hierarchy of decision makers. Uh, that legislation actually uh, did not pass, uh, but the, the benefit of, of what happened was a coming together of a number of stakeholders, uh, the, the alliance, uh, which Lori can certainly tell us about, uh, the California Medical Association, as well as the Hospital Association and the State Bar. And we were able to, I think, craft a very practical uh, solution that sought to establish a standard of, of practice, if you will, across the state. And that was in the form of a policy that's been adopted very, very broadly. And the purpose of the policy was to address some of those, those concerns that Thaddeus was speaking to. And really, our aim was to provide the appropriate care, the appropriate treatment, in a very timely and efficient manner. So I, I fully agree that conservatorship or guardianship uh, often is not a practical solution. Uh, and yet we needed some structure. We needed a process to vet these decisions and to ensure that there were a number of, of points of view. And so this is a, an interdisciplinary approach, a care team approach, uh, and it is patient-centered, uh, which I think is the most important thing uh, with regard to this policy. And I'll, I'll pause there and, and turn it over to Lori at this point. Thank you, David. Well, let's start with some of the questions before we get into the actual policy um, elements. Um, so what was the impact on clinicians and ethics committees? And, and David and I will both sort of share our perspective. I think first and foremost, um, David mentioned that there was no um, sort of statutory guidelines that existed. So what this gave us was consistency and uniformity within an institutional setting. And it really does provide a process for making ethically and medically appropriate treatment decisions on, on behalf of patients who are unrepresented. And what I found, and I've served on ethics committees for 25 years, um, it, this policy really does give great support to physicians. And it really doesn't, it, it, it doesn't leave the care team sort of second guessing what should be done, how treatment decisions should be made, and it gives them this process that has integrity. So that's what I've seen on the impact. And David, I don't, I know you get yeah. um, a great deal of uh, probably the, the more troubling complex cases. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, again, providing a structure and a process. And, and one of the things that we've, we've, struggled with in California um, on the part of the clinicians is the fact that because we lack legislative guidance, um, some states, for example, in Arizona has a hierarchy that concludes with two physicians having authority and immunity to make decisions. In California, we don't have that. And so one of the things that, that we continue to struggle with, but that this policy has helped with, is what I, I refer to here as the two-clinician myth. Uh, you know, that two, two clinicians get together and then they can go forth and, and make decisions, when in fact that's not the case in our state. And so this has provided a, a forum and really, I, I think, some backing for our clinicians uh, to thoroughly vet decisions, to get input, and to ensure that we have a common and consistent approach uh, to these cases. And, and one of the things, you know, that, that when, we, when we talk about what do our facilities uh, need to do or continue to do or stop doing, uh, because this is not a legislative solution, it's not memorialized in the law, but merely adopted as a policy at the facility level, uh, you know, it's very important that when a facility takes this approach, that they go through the appropriate channels to adopt the policy, and once it's adopted, 
uh, it's very important that they follow the policy. And so once we decide to go this route, uh, and I get these questions quite frequently from our hospitals when they may have a, a problem convening the committee. And, and at Dignity Health, we require uh, a community member uh, who, who is not financially reliant on the facility so that we have a, a neutral voice uh, to be present for all deliberations. And we're very firm on that. And, and we require that, you know, you can't move forward with this without that community member present. And so following the policy is very important uh, and ensuring that, uh, you know, the, the facility has the written policy in place. Should it ever be questioned, we know what the structure is. We know what the, the process is. David and Lori, uh, we'll get to the policy soon, but, you know, given the given what's occurred in California, what do you think has been the, the key learning uh, for you about what, what the California experience has been? Well, I, I think I'll, I'll start and, and then uh, pause for, for Lori to answer that question because I think it's a very good question. Uh, one of the things that we really saw come out of this, this process was a coming together and collaboration among the stakeholders. Uh, California is a very challenging state to get legislation through. There's a lot of voices. Um, in this case, uh, we did have the CMA, CHA, the Alliance, the State Bar, all at the table and in agreement, uh, which I think was a huge learning for us that this was um, a real problem that required a practical solution. And then after the policy was actually published and disseminated, um, a number of the large healthcare systems, Dignity Health being one of them, several others as well, uh, were able to take the policy and adopt it. So we really have established uh, what I would call a standard of practice or a, you know, a standard of care throughout the state. Yeah, and let me just sort of um, emphasize what David just said. California, as large as it is, um, for whatever reason, the culture has been in the you know, 25, 30 years I've been working in this area, we do come together collaboratively on complex issues, especially around end-of-life issues, it seems. So dating back to the early 90s with the Patient Self-Determination Act, as a state, we came together to determine how we would implement that federal uh, mandate. So we have a culture in California of um, the stakeholders and large entities like the hospital association, the Catholic hospitals, and the and the medical association coming together and working on complex issues and, and really working those through. And this was a good example of how how you work through each of the, each organization has a different culture, right? The hospitals and then CMA. So we really did establish uh, and took the time to vet this policy and get critiques appropriately. So for the Alliance, we um, share drafts with our internal and external bioethicists. Uh, the California Medical Association had this uh, vetted through their Council on Ethical Affairs. The Hospital Association went through their Chief Medical Officers Committee. And then we have what's called the California Coalition for Compassionate Care. It's a statewide coalition of state agencies, not-for-profits, other um, advocacy groups that work on improving end-of-life in California. So they had a professional practices work group, and we uh, worked the policy through that group. And so ultimately, we, had, we took the time to get feedback and have the policy vetted both through 
formal and informal structures. And that really is a key learning yep. that was essential. Also getting the formal approval at the top level of these organizations. So all the boards of CMA, the Hospital Association and the Alliance, um, all of their board of directors at the highest level um, affirmed or approved the policy. So and that really does lend great credibility so um, to the policy. So Lorraine, David, um, the policies created in place and obviously no policy in any state probably ends up being uh, uh, absolutely perfect. Are there, are there things that kind of still remain, you know, challenges that are still there for clinicians that, that are trying to get work through and maybe the next evolution will help to solve as well? You know, well, from, from, go ahead, go ahead, David. No, no, Lori, go ahead. I see from my experience working on the ethics committees, um, really over the last three to four years, using the unrepresented patient policy really has been the biggest use for our case, my case consults. That is the majority of case consults that we get. And so it's being well utilized. I guess some of the consideration based on what other states are doing is, would the next evolution be considering establishing this in statute? So for my personal bias um, from a pol my policy hat on is I have a bias against putting these types of things into statute, you know, trying to legislate treatment decisions, unless there's really a compelling reason to do so. So I tend to prefer to see these types of processes work themselves out in community like we've done, sort of have the statewide voluntary policy. But if there are legal barriers that exist, then consider legislation at that time. And we haven't really bumped up against any kind of barriers um, at this point. Well, let's take a yeah, look. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with, with those comments, Lori. I think the one question that we do receive sometimes from physicians is whether there is statutory immunity for following this this policy. And, and of course, the, the answer to that is, is no, there's not. And so I know that that is a concern among some um, that would require legislative action. Uh, but I, I think that, that that may not be the immediate next step. Well, let's take a look at the policy itself. Uh, what... Um... What are the key pieces that uh, have been found to be most helpful that uh, that are in the policy itself to create a path? Sure. Well, obviously, indispensable is you know deter having the physician determine that the patient lacks decision making capacity and and working with the social workers and care team to to ensure that um, uh, or try and find a surrogate decision maker if there's any and if there is not having all of that documented. Of course, reviewing the diagnosis and prognosis of the patient and 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 really as you would with any patient, um, determining the appropriate goals of care and weighing those um, against various considerations. So once all that has been done, so who is this policy appropriate for and how do you determine appropriate treatment? Um, you know, except, except to the extent that such a factor is medically relevant, any medical treatment decision uh, made under this policy shouldn't be based or biased on their patient's age, sex, race, or any other category prohibited by law. You know, don't bias it against the patient's ability to pay for healthcare services as we would with any other patient, or avoidance of burden to family or others to society. So the, the example of the homeless schizophrenic, um, there may be a bias um, against those patients, but that is, um, we consciously say that is not um, how medical treatment decisions will be, will be based on. Um, what's different about, I think, this policy is this use of a multidisciplinary team. When we 
we're looking at various examples. This is, you know, we didn't take this, um, we didn't create this policy. We looked at other examples. And there are um, other examples in California where the bioethics committee is the decision-making entity. And we made a um, conscious and firm decision that we did not want a bioethics committee to really pull themselves out of their typical role of education, recommendations, advice, um, council and be a decision-making entity. So that was different in California. And so this multidisciplinary team, we name the attending physician, a nurse who, uh, familiar with the patient, a social worker familiar with the patient, the chair or vice chair of the ethics committee, and a non-medical um, community member um, should be a part of the uh, multidisciplinary team, as well as any other consulting clinicians, pastoral care, et cetera, should be part of the multidisciplinary team. And they're going to have the same authority and limitations um, under law as any surrogate decision maker or agent or uh, legally recognized healthcare decision maker. Um, the multidisciplinary team must assure itself that the medical decision is made based on sound medical advice and really is in the patient's best interest and takes into account the patient's values to extent known. So we work a lot with our social workers and caseworkers to um, find the agency that maybe they are associated with. So if they're part of the county system, see if they have a caseworker that we can consult. If a friend or neighbor who knows this patient, um, who maybe have even brought the patient in, although they may not want to be the decision maker, is to try and find as best we can what the patient's values are, what their history has been, um, and lo also look at their medical chart and see what kind of medical decisions they made when they did have capacity. And then in determining the best interest of the patient, um, it's not required that life support be continued in all circumstances um, where treatment is non-beneficial or is medically ineffective, and that comes right out of California law, as well as um, if it's ethically inappropriate, which also is protected under California law, or if the patient is terminally ill or suffering, um, or where there's no reasonable expectation of the recovery of cognitive functions. Those are all circumstances that would not require life support to be continued. Now, so how do you get agreement? Um, if all members of the multidisciplinary team agree to the appropriateness of providing treatment, it shall be provided. Um, you know, I've had, we've had several cases where, and, and Thaddeus, you talked about that. You don't want to wait for this to become an emergency. So whether they're sort of common procedures or more complex surgeries, um, all members of the multidisciplinary team come together um, and to decide the appropriateness of, all, all of the treatment. And if they um, agree to the appropriateness of um, withholding and withdrawing treatment, it shall be withdrawn. Now, for some facilities, we understand that they'll want additional steps as maybe having a chief of staff approve or have the actual review of the full ethics committees um, when, you're, we, when you are withdrawing um, life-sustaining treatment. And we, we had a lot of discussion around, you know, so any implementation of a decision to withhold or withdraw life-sustaining treatment, that really will be the responsibility of the primary treating physician, who is part of that uh, interdisciplinary team working um, on the decision. 
So for disagreements, um, if members of the, of the team disagree about the care plan, uh, the ethics committee, um, as we do with any other patient or any other, um, um, and our ethics resource expert, um, will meet with the team to explore their disagreement and facilitate the resolution. So we do in fact, sort of contemplate giving veto power to just one member of the team if there is not agreement. If agreement is reached, either to provide or forego treatment, the decision of the team then becomes final. If agreement is still not reached, um, current treatments absolutely will be continued and any other medically necessary treatments will be provided until such a time that the issue is resolved through court intervention or the disagreement is otherwise resolved. Typically, legal counsel or risk management oftentimes gets, in, it gets involved. And as we said, going to court really is a last resort. This, this policy is not meant to um, circumvent or avoid the court system, but as Thaddeus has mentioned, is they, and David, it's it's it really is a last resort. And the courts um, typically they don't want to have to make these decisions, and they're not really um, the best um, course of action, if you will. And, and regardless of what the what the circumstances, in all cases, and this is part of our policy that appropriate pain relief and other palliative care shall be continued. Now we did contemplate, and David will talk a little bit about sort of what are those exceptional circumstances. Right. And, and so there are some exceptional circumstances where we do say basically consult with legal counsel. Um, and, and that involves a, a decision to withdraw or withhold treatment that is likely to result in death of the patient and certain factual situations um, are also present. And that those would be, for example, the patient's condition as a result of an injury that appears to have been inflicted by a criminal act. Uh, the patient's condition was either created or aggravated by a medical accident or medical error. Uh, the patient is pregnant, uh, or the patient is a parent with sole custody or responsibility of a minor child. And you know these uh, are called out specifically uh, because there may be risk liability or legal concerns, or in the case of a pregnant patient or uh, parent of a child, these really come from case law across the country where courts uh, have looked at situations where there might be, you know, a countervailing interest at stake. And so we wanted to pull those aside and say, you know, on these, take a pause, call legal counsel, and then they can make a decision as to what the appropriate course of action is, whether court intervention is necessary or not. Interesting, those uh, exceptional circumstances, and interesting, too, for California the, the, the uh, orientation towards that multidisciplinary team uh, approach as a, as, as a way to respond, um, even though part of the policy or part of that team uh, can also consult an ethics committee. Let's, let's uh, take another snapshot in the country and, and look at what's occurring uh, within the state of Colorado. And to that, uh, we'll go to our guest, uh, uh, Jackie. Jackie, can you... Uh, offer us a bit of a picture about uh, the approach that uh, has been taken in Colorado, perhaps a little similar, perhaps a little different from that in California. 
Sure. In Colorado, um, I was part of a, a coalition with my colleagues, Dr. Jean Abbott and Dr. Deb Bennett Woods, that really brought together people in mostly Denver to address this issue. And we developed a white paper originally in 2013. Um, at the same time, the um, judicial branch was considering um, public guardianship. And so we wrote this um, white paper, and Deb was part of this um, effort um, to include health care decisions um, as part of the public guardianship. And unfortunately, that fell through. And rather than just dropping what was our impetus, we decided to try to um, amend our proxy law. And so much to our surprise, we actually amended the proxy law, and um, it became law in August of 2013. The um, law um, is very um, minimalistic, and it's voluntary. You don't have to follow this. Um, it allows a physician um, on a voluntary basis to be um, the proxy of last resort. Um, the, uh, the physician cannot be the attending physician. And they have to consult with the ethics committee um, in the appointment. Um, this is an appropriate person to appoint and in the decisions that are um, beyond just ordinary decisions. There's an independent determination of capacity. And the, um, uh, the physician can uh, terminate um, his role or her role as proxy at any time. And included is a physician acting in this proxy role is not subject to criminal or um, legal liability. And so what were we trying to address? Um, we really wanted to deliver better care, have a way to support um, the better care as a matter of justice and um, uh, well-being um, and not harming. And we wanted a nimble way to address it because, as has been said very eloquently, um, guardianship is a really long process. And we had a very, we have a very good proxy law. Um, it's not a um, ordered system, and we allow friends and acquaintances um, to be proxies, but we really didn't contemplate unrepresented. And it is voluntary and minimal. And so we developed guidelines for hospitals um, to use as they were um, developing their own policies and proceeded. We wanted it to be nimble so that different kinds of institutions, nursing homes, hospices, hospitals, rural hospitals, academic hospitals, um, could develop their own processes. Um, and, um, and so uh, the, um, we were able to, um, I think, support clinicians in developing um, better care. Um, as was said before, we have this myth of the two physicians that is a myth. So we were able to provide a process um, that does provide immunity that um, supports the decisions. Um, and so how the clinicians were impacted were some clinicians had to step up and be these volunteer um, physician proxies. Um, we had to develop policies and procedures and um, educate the staff, educate our ethics committees, and um, social work and case management really has to step up because you have to um, document reasonable efforts that you have tried to find a proxy and have failed um, and um, document that. 
And so um, ethics committees were involved before, but now they have to be. And so what's the impact on healthcare entities? Um, if you decided that you didn't want to employ this me mechanism, there is no change. You didn't have to write new policies and procedures. Um, but if you did, you had to really um, amend your policies and procedures for decision-making and your policies and procedures for your ethics committees. You had to really develop a robust education effort. And um, we decided that at the same time, you still had to uh, continue to seek out guardianship and really develop good documentation um, efforts, um, templates, and especially in your efforts to find a proxy. So what did we learn in this process? Um, uh, in your resources is a recently published um, article um, about um, our process, and we learned that changing the law is really difficult. Um, and we didn't want to go there, but we didn't want to drop it when the alternative fell through. And so I think um, we had a good advocate in the House, um, well-respected, um, and had personal opinion, uh, experience. Um, we had a wonderful lobbyist, but we were apolitical. We were naive to the legislative process, um, and um, we were collaborative. We didn't bring an agenda other than saying, remember the patients, remember the patients, and we were able to bring in the process back to the patients and their stories. Um, and most importantly, it came with no fiscal note. And so I think that's how we were able to get the law amended. Um, and working with stakeholders is really challenging, but really rewarding. We worked with all the stakeholders that have been mentioned, but we also included the, the largest um, liability carrier. And that was really um, challenging. But that process made the law much better, um, installed more um, um, more awareness and um, uh, safeguards. Um, and the, perhaps the greatest thing that we learned um, was the, the greatest thing that came from it was this key co coalition. And out of this, we also discovered a really distressing um, distrust of physicians. Even though it wasn't the attending physician, we tried to um, take it back and um, use the ethics committee. People were always worried about the conflicts of interest with the physician and giving the physician too much power. And so we have really come full circle out of this coalition um, in the last legislative session, we got passed a pilot program for public guardianship. So we're back where we belong. Um, we began, um, and um, it's it, again no fiscal note. So it's just getting started, and um, and um, they have to raise the money, and so. Um, um, these are the key things that we learned from our process of having um, now amended legislation. Thanks. Thanks, Jackie, for uh, that picture in California as well. So for our listeners, um, and keeping an eye on our time, we want to have time for uh, questions. But before we do that, uh, do we have one more poll? No, we don't. Um, so... Uh, we want to open it up for potential questions from our listeners to our guests today that offered um, 
not only the clinician experience and Thaddeus offering the national uh, trends, but also the experience of two states, Colorado and California, in actually moving forward and responding to this issue. Jackie, what I, I know you've been involved in the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities work with um, guidelines and and the growth of ethics committees and their competence. And I know that within Colorado, you know, ethics committees are used more in these situations. Um, did you find that there was a growing process and a learning process for ethics committees? They kind of had to ramp up or, or, or learn more uh, to be able to be responsive to these situations. Oh, absolutely. And um, looking at what the factors for success would be, um, we don't really know what's happening out there in the state. So we're planning a survey um, to really um, figure out what people are dealing with and the problems. And um, for my personal experience and my colleagues in the Denver region, yes, absolutely. Um, ethics committees really had to ramp up um, their involvement. And um, we're concerned about rural. If you're a rural hospital without an ethics committee, um, how can we help you? Actually, most of the rural hospitals do belong to bigger systems, and there's only a couple that are completely rural and they don't have any ethics committees. So, um, Kevin, you have identified a key um, problem in um, how are they using it and how are the ethics committees stepping up to the challenges? Any questions from listeners at this point? Uh, this is uh, uh, Juan Iregui. Can you hear me? Yes, come. Yes, absolutely. Yes, hi. Thank you for, for a wonderful presentation. And just a, a question uh, about uh, how uh, the folks in, in California go about, how does the policy states how uh, to select the members? Uh, because I think that I think that the bigger question here, I think, is the issues of standards around the country in reference to who, who are the people who are part of ethics committees and also what is the competency of the members of ethics committee. You know, my, my experience in three states is that if you know an ethics committee, you know an ethics committee. There is no consistency in the process of discernment. So so we're starting with that problem, uh, which is, I think, we all know that that is an, an actual problem. Now we're adding another layer of, uh, of uh, discernment that is more complex. So how do you address issues of competency and uh, and uh, how do you select your members so for david alori back to you is it selecting the members of the ethics committee or uh, members of the multidisciplinary team for the unrepresented patient policy well of the of the uh, multidisciplinary uh, committee but with the lenses of the, the current struggle that we have where there is uh, variability on, on the discernment process of ethics committee around the country. That's why I think, well, I think they're almost separate questions in the sense that you, you want to make sure you're building up competencies for your ethics committee members, regardless of what kind of case consult they're going to be working on. Um, so that I know within um, Dignity Health, that's um, been been an important factor all along. And we, we're mm -hmm. also going through sort of that, that 
competency building, if you will. Um, you know, the multidisciplinary team is it often, we recommend it being named in the policy. So who do you want? The attending physician, the nurse, the social worker, et cetera. But the having the ethics committee leader, whether it's the chair or vice chair or an ethics committee member, um, as well as oftentimes the community member, the non-medical community member will come from bioethics, but they also could come from the IRB as well, as long as it's the non-medical community member. And they because I serve as a community member on the ethics committee because um, I'm not part of a health system or, or the hospital, sort of making sure there's the competencies not only of your clinical staff and providers, but also ensuring the competencies of your community members. Um, and I think that's just ongoing ethics education and development. Kevin, can I uh, speak to this? Um, maybe your state has a voluntary um, association. Uh, Colorado has the Colorado Healthcare Ethics Forum, and many states have a collection of uh, a time um, and place for ethics committee members to come together for education. Um, in addition to education that happens in the individual institutions and systems, that's a really wonderful resource if you have a state um, forum. Well, thanks everyone. I want to thank and appreciate our guests for joining us today. Uh, we wanted to identify towards the end here that we have some resources available to you uh, on the uh, identified Google link. You'll find the California model policy, the Colorado model policy, uh, guest published articles, as well as helpful background information. Thanks again. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.